of What's the Hook with Diane and Andy. My guest today is a prolific writer, producer. Uh, Prentice, are you also a director? Mm-hmm. Oh, a director, of course. Uh, Prentice Penny, ladies and gentlemen, who has made his bones in the business and knows his way around a script, a story, and a laugh. You know his work if you've ever watched the show's Happy Endings, Girlfriends, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and the classic, the now classic, Insecure, HBO's Insecure, which he co-showran with Issa Rae, correct? Mm -hmm. Do I have Mm -hmm. that right? Um, Princess also made a wonderful movie about wine called Uncorked, which he also knows a lot about. (laughs) And in my opinion, he also did a fantastic show about style for True TV called Upscale with Prentice Penny. And if you don't know this about Prentice, he is a walking style magazine. Just check out his Instagram, which is at the underscore A underscore Prentice, P-R-E-N-T-I-C-E. And you will see I am not wrong. The man knows his way around a good closet. He is a well-dressed man, as ZZ Top would say. Hi, Prentice. It's great to see you and talk to you. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Um, The first thing I want to talk about is I was really excited when I saw that you signed an overall deal with Disney's Onyx Collective. Yeah. And I'd love you to talk about that to tell me what you're working on because they just had their first, is Reasonable Doubt their first series that yes. came out of it? Yes. Yeah, so I think part of it was I've been in HBO and obviously I had such a really great experience making Insecure over there and making Pause with Sam J over there. Um, and But there were certain ways that I felt that I wanted the company to grow that I just wasn't sure, even as amazing as they were, that I could do there. Like I, I wanted to get into the other, to other things that they just probably weren't going to like going to get into. I wanted to get into animation. I wanted to get into ah. more scripted series. I wanted to get into things that might be like, what's my version of a procedural just stuff that they're just not going to make. Right. Obviously they do a certain thing and they do it really well. Yes. And I still wanted to make things like that, but I also wanted to make other things that I just didn't think they just wouldn't ever really make or, and, or have the programming hours to do at HBO, right? Which is different than if you're on a streamer or some other platform. So for me, I wanted to be somewhere where that I could grow like the company in, in a specific way. And, and, you know, it's like the way we live now, it's like, you know, four corporations own all the platforms. Right. And so for me, it sort of made sense. Obviously Disney owns so many things. Right. And so sometimes we would get projects that we would get pitched to us that we were like, great, let's go pitch this. Sometimes we get projects that we like, but we'd have to like kind of futz with the DNA of the show to make it feel like an HBO show instead of kind of just letting it be where it would be, what right? It be. And, sure. Yes. And so for me, I wanted to be like, inevitably those shows never kind of win because we were kind of messing with the DNA inevitably. And that really wasn't the way the show was intended. So I wanted to be able to hear pitches that I could say, okay, this isn't, this may not sell here at this platform, but I could sell it here, here, and here, right? And so, and I don't have to mess with it, right? I can just kind of let it be what it is. And, and it felt like Disney with their various platforms of obviously Hulu and Freeform and Disney Plus and ABC exactly. and, and, and 20th and uh, and things like that. And, and having so many IPs, we want to reimagine things. And obviously Onyx coming up being a new platform that was, you know, run by people of color, for people of color in terms of the the people who are coming and shaping the content. Yes. It just felt like such a natural fit where I've worked 18 years and I've never been in a room with so many execs of color that have the decision to say yes. Right. That's a big, that's a big huge. thing, right? Yes. Yeah, huge. And and you, and you know, oftentimes you have to explain 
to to other execs who might be white of like why this is important or why this is valid or have to explain well this is this is the way the entry point should be not so not your entry point right and so sometimes it can get frustrating to have to like sometimes explain that and I experienced that more on the network side than I did obviously at HBO but it still felt like I wanted to be in a place where coming off insecure where people of colors art doesn't need to be explained and um, it's just understood. And so the Onyx sort of felt the perfect condition to that because they could, I could play at all the major playgrounds and we could, we have to go to Onyx first, but if Onyx doesn't do it, we can go to FX or Freeform. We can go to all the places. Well, that's just the first look. Yeah, that's just the first look. So our deal is with Onyx, but we have the freedom if they didn't want to do it, that we can go anywhere. Nice. Um, but you still have the specificity of, being at a studio that's run by people of color, that's a, a black woman who's a president and these sort of things where, again, like our art is understood and, and why it's important. Uh, so they kind of feel like just a happy dovetail of both of those things in like the best ways. And I feel like when you are at the mouse house, there are just so many options. It's like you were saying, there's a lot of places to take yeah. projects. And yeah. I, I think um, viewers have gotten a lot more savvy about that. I think consumers get a lot more savvy about that as they subscribe or do not subscribe to certain services. Yeah. And Disney Plus is going out of their way to make that a value proposition. Yeah. And not just, not just for families. You know, they're trying to make it a value proposition for everybody. They're and it's interesting to too, because like the way people consume TV is not the same. Not at than, all. Like, like then 10 years ago. So like, I know a bunch of people that like watch like shows that don't watch it on the platform it even comes on like they're just like oh i just watched it on apple tv but like abbott elementary doesn't come on apple tv it comes right. on ABC, right but it's on hulu or you can buy it on amazon prime or you can buy it on apple tv right like so the way people brand identify isn't really the same way anymore it's just like where are the shows i like and i'm gonna watch those shows which you kind of have to appreciate because I think people are finding shows in new ways. That's one of the mm -hmm. reasons we started this podcast, my co-host Andy and I, because we just want people to discover really interesting stuff and a yeah. wide variety of it. Because yeah. I'm all for having my horizons broadened. And I, yeah. one of the things about me and one of the reasons I fell in love with Insecure so quickly was because some of the stories were familiar, but look at the people telling the stories. It was people yeah. I hadn't seen before and yeah. it was super cool. And I, I just, I love that. And also, I think that was the main thing too, right? Which is like, it just humanized the same thing. It's like, we all know what it feels like to be insecure about something. That's a universal human emotion. We're just telling it through the lens like, of somebody else. Like I would always say, it would be like if you took Parks and Rec and you made Retta the main character as opposed to Leslie Nope, right? As a, you know, so it's like, but that's just all we did. We just shifted the point of view of who the hero was, right? And, and this shows my age, but when I first saw Insecure, I thought it was basically a black version of the Mary Tyler Moore show. <laughs> it has a lot of elements of that for sure. And, and Issa, you know, Issa D is, she's finding her way. She's yep. just figuring out what she really wants to be doing. And yep. you see her just kind of grow, but it stops and starts and it's troubles with yep. your friends. And of course it was much hipper, much cooler, contemporary. The style on the show blew my mind. You know, that that's a whole episode in itself. But to me, I was like, it's the Mary Tyler Moore show and it's just so smart and it's so, it's just so smart and funny and observant and 
you know, just week after week and, and just cheers to everyone on that show, because also the talent that you guys brought together for the show, Yvonne Orji, Natasha Rothwell. I mean, oh, it just, it was staggering. It was all staggering. That's all a testament to all the writers and actors and directors that we had on the show. And they were all just great. And I love how people like um, Dana Lynn North and Amy Aniobi, you know, they're evolving themselves and they're getting mm-hmm. deals and they're becoming right and they're writing and directing and they're doing their own stuff. And yeah. it's very cool. And it kind of leads me to my next question was, I feel like you've been, you and Issa, really, you've both, you were both very, very cognizant of bringing people in and bringing people up. And when you were doing that, um, I mean, I know it comes naturally to you. I don't know that it comes naturally to the, the old white guys who run <laughs> run sitcoms. And let me tell you, there's some fantastic sitcoms out there, but I don't For know. Sure. They're, they're kind of forced to think about it that way now where they didn't back when, when I was working in like TV development and current programs. And basically those writers rooms were all white. And well, way, there weren't many women either. Yeah, for, yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think to the point, I think Issa and I were very aligned on both of those issues independently, right? Like she was a big believer of, of propping up her friends and people that she were with that were talented, people that we brought in, like Tristan and Suchata from Awkward Black Girl. Right. To bring in, you know, Amy and, and you know, who, who wrote on Awkward Black Girl and wanted to, like, elevate people that she knew that that's just how Issa is. And, and I had seen that when I worked on girlfriends, I had just seen how Mara was always trying to foster new voices like myself and Karen Gist, who now is, is doing the Ali McBeal boot. And obviously she's done star and so many other, but she was just a big believer. Yeah. yeah, Like Lena Waithe, like she was just a big believer of that. And so that's what I was coming in at on top of just wanting to always give people opportunities. And Issa and I were just very aligned that we just had a similar philosophy of that. And I think also too, having worked on more, I would say more traditional white shows. I just saw how being the only black person in the room, I just saw how hard it is to crack those things. Right. And then, but, but I have two schools of thought around like this sort of old white guy thing that is like, right. So there's the one school of thought to me, which is like, and I'm just saying, I only say it because I've seen it, which is like people as humans are more, just do what they're comfortable with. It's hard to get anybody to like, really step out of their comfort zone. And I'm even talking about like comfort zone of restaurants they go to, comfort zone of like, you know, trying new places to travel, like literally just comfort zones of just like people want to be comfortable all the time, right? Right. So if what you grow up in, you want to find things that feel familiar and comfortable, right? So there's the thought of that. I'm not even thinking about it because I'm not thinking about it. I'm just thinking about it because as a human being, I'm just defaulting to things I know. And that's that, right? And then there's the school, but it's like, if you bring it to their attention, then they do something about it, right? That's that's like, if you don't know what you don't know, right? And if you're not really thinking about it, you've never been questioned to think about it, then I understand. You're just, and it's so hard to make a show, you know, it's so hard to make a show that when you get a show, you want to work with people you trust. And if all you work with are other people that look like you, well, then that's who you hire. And then that cycle just kind of repeats itself, right? And so there's that mindset. But then there's the other mindset, which are people who like, very vehemently push back against it for whatever reason they are. And I'm like, that's, that's the problems, right? It's like when yes. you bring it to their attention and they have all these reasons, justifications, why if it's like, well, they didn't grow up, black people didn't grow up like me, or I grew up in a very, it's like, or, or this person doesn't have my background. It's like, that becomes all whatever, because for me, I go, people of color have always watched white television. Of people of color understand white worlds 
way more than you would understand our worlds, right? Exactly. Because your worlds are on screen all the time. So I'm much more, I know how to do that show. You don't know how to do my show because I'm in your world all the time. So I get to, I'm the outsider being on the inside. So I know how to do this. I've watched these shows from Facts of Life to, you know, All in the Family. I've watched your world exist. You haven't watched my, like you've watched a televised version of my life, which we all know a lot of those shows were, half the staff was white anyway, right? Or a lot of the staff was white, you know? So it's like, so you're just kind of regurgitating things you've seen from other shows that were written by other white people, but you're not actually in the experience, right? And so so that's where I I kind of categorize, there's two thoughts. And I feel like when I see a lot of older white men push back that they can't get jobs today because of white men, I was like, that's BS. We like, so most of the shows are still white. This idea that like, Four show, four new shows that have like some people of color in them is like not the they're still making white shows as far as I know. It's so. true. It's true. And I feel lucky in that I I've known showrunners, people like Greg Daniels and Mike Schur and you. Dean Poor, and um just guys who definitely evolved. Like, mm-hmm. you know, first of all, they're always pretty fair in their hiring anyway, and they hired a wide variety of people anyway. Yeah. You know, Mindy Kaling over and over has acknowledged how Greg Daniels really giving her her start on the office, you know, acting and writing. Um, And just. um, Mike's a good example too. Like Mike Shore is a really good example of that for sure. Yes. And also because he happens, he and Dan Gore to me are two of like Mm -hmm. menschy guys, just gentlemen. (laughs) You know, they they conduct themselves well. They're just lovely guys. And I, I wasn't, trying to make you name names or anything like that. No, 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 no. I was saying because I haven't been on that. And I only say Mike only because when I, when I think about that, I just think about Mike, but he and Dan, obviously, and having a show even like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, like, because most shows like Brooklyn are going to have like the one black guy. But the fact that they had two black men and and two Latin women, it's like that, like the majority of the cast was people of color. If you take like really That's like true. Joe Trulio and Andy were the only, like I would say white people, but the other four cast members were people of color. So you just don't typically see that. And that, and that was... Even when I saw the pilot, that stood out to me the most. Which makes sense because if it's supposed to be set in Brooklyn, that makes total sense. Right. So, but but it's it's not always like that though, right? It's it's not always like that. You know, it's like it, it can go the opposite way. So that that just stood out to me the most. I was really stunned when I saw that pilot of how much color was in the cast. You just you just don't typically see it. And what I'm wondering is now that you're pitching more series, how do you think? the progress is going in the executive suites again, not asking you to name names or anything, but do you think there's an evolution, you know, besides Onyx collective, are you seeing more black executives, even a hand? Yeah, I'm definitely seeing, I I would say overall, I'm definitely seeing more C-suite people of color across the board than I saw 10 years ago. Like, absolutely. I hope so. So it's, but that's not always, but it's like, you know, it's like, because I feel like I was coming up with a lot of those people, like Simran over at ABC. It's like, we kind of just started at a similar time and now she's had a programming for ABC, right? So like, but I remember when she was like a lower exec on the thing and to watch her, we just saw each other at an Emmy thing for, nice. for Disney. And it was so great to see her because I hadn't seen her in so long because I've been in HBO or I've been at Fox. I just wasn't in her in her world anymore. So, but it was like, oh, such a, so I'm seeing the execs I was coming up with now starting to be VPs, or head of this, or head of comedy, nice. head of you know what I mean, which is which is great, and I'm seeing also more younger execs of color than I just would have seen too, right? So you couple like the, the execs when I was coming up rising to be VPs or heads of this, coupled with them being aware now to hire 
more execs of color. So, the, you know what I mean? So like by proxy, it's like, if I have one kid and now I have two, well, two more kids are going to have more opportunities than I, like, than I had. And so, because they're aware of who they're hiring and how they're playing that out. So you're definitely seeing more of it. I mean, the truth is, is you really want to see it be the people that can green light shows at the end of the day, right? Exactly. Like, obviously it's good. And we know that this is progress and progress is always, any progress is always good, but it really comes down to the end of the day. Can your person say yes? And that's, that's such a huge um, thing. And that's been talked about a lot on both the movie and television side, because I yeah. guess it's even harder on the movie side to yeah. get those projects green lit because right. movie development is just slower and even worse than television development. Right. And they're so, not really making movies like that anymore either. It's like it's most of the movies are big temples or these indie things exactly. or the movies that are actually happening are on streaming platforms that are like the movies, like traditional like you know, you're like your mid $20 million movie right. or whatever, like, right. you know, like that kind of small move, small, like relative small, but they're only, those are made on streamers, but they're not, they're not made for theaters anymore. I was still really, I, I had so much admiration for you for making Uncorked because I know how hard you worked. And I was like, <laughs> damn, it's finally coming together. I mean, it was just very cool to see that. Thank you. Um, I, I know the executive thing. I also, you know, it always makes me cringe when you hear like, a diversity officer or, you know, look, inclusivity should just be part of the business. And I think anything that is institutional is very hard to tear down. One, yeah. another thing I also really admire, and I'm wondering if you've taken advantage of it is Ava DuVernay started Array Now, and she, she put together this incredible database. Yeah. She got, I think, most of the studios to cooperate. Yeah. And people are like below the, for, I think, mostly below the line jobs. I think it's yes, below the line, Yeah. So people of color are getting more jobs and getting more entree into the industry. Have yep. you taken advantage of that yet? I'm going to. I haven't been filming anything since Insecure oh, okay. finished. I've just been developing, but we have two, two I have two pilots that are going to, I have a pilot that's that I'm going to direct uh, like for Onyx at some point next year. And I have a docu-series for them I'm directing. Nice. So I'm sure, but that's coming up first. So I'm sure as I'm getting down to, like I already knew like, okay, when that starts to like materialize, we're still like riding the dock right now. But I was like, oh yeah, when that starts to materialize and, and like shooting in the top of the year, I, absolutely. Okay, I kind of figured um, because I just, when when she put that together and I remember so like- smart. It just made so much sense. Yep. yep. As in like, and she, and I really I also really admire when people smart when smart people get some power and then they're starting to use it for good like yeah. it's just going to benefit everybody absolutely absolutely because that because that would always be the thing like oh we, we don't know any good ads or we don't know any good grips or we don't know and that was the thing on insecure that Issa and I were just like mandated down that you know, almost all the department heads were women or people of color, period. And so, yes. and that was just a big, you know, 60% of the crew had to be women and people of color. Like, we just weren't like, we weren't taking the sort of like, well, we can't find any approach because it was like, they're out there. I think you just have to look a little harder. But I think- once no, It's not even sometimes that it's harder. It's that when you can't crack, it's about who, this is why I say like decision-making is so important because- when you, who makes decisions, because they are out there, but not every exec sees our shows the same. So that, 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 that grip could have been a grip on the Jamie Foxx show, could have been a grip on this, could have oh. been on that. But if they don't see that as the same as being on Modern Family, 
well then if, if you don't view that like the work is the same then you kind of view this as like a step down from this and so and so and so it was so important for them to crack their things on insecure because they could say oh that's an H- i did an hbo show though right because if you don't have if you have you know it's just sadly the way people see our art right it's not the same it's not it's just not correlated and so if you go Oh, but if you have these sort of quote unquote white shows on your resume and you have these quote unquote black shows on your resume and you were to put them side by side to an exec who they're going to make a decision, they're going to pick the things they are comfortable with. And that just sadly ends up being those things. And it's just real. I've seen it. That is shocking because uh, especially on the crewing side, the work is the same. Yeah, it's it's not even that. It's like, I, it's also like, I haven't, I don't watch those shows. So the exec is like, not even like, yeah, I know that show exists, but I don't watch those. Yeah, like, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. Like, I was on, I was on a show, and people were asking me what show I had just come off of, and I was like, "Oh, I was on, I was on a show called Girlfriends," and they were like, a couple of writers were like, "Oh, I never heard of that." Now, mind you, we had done eight seasons of a show. We're on UP and CW. We had done almost, we had done 200 episodes, almost 200. We did like 180, 190. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yes. And so I was like, oh, they were like, they, they were like, is that new? And I was like, no, no. <laughs> we've been on the air for, for eight seasons. They were like, wow, really? Like, who was on the show? And I was like, I was like, okay, in my mind, I was like, who will these white guys kind of know? And I said, well, Tracy Ellis Ross was our star. Who? Oh my God. I was like, well, she was the star. She also was Diana Ross's daughter. Blah, blah blah. They were like, "Oh, I don't know," but that just goes to show, like, if that if if they if those guys were showrunners and I had put girlfriend as a resume as a grip, right? They don't know what that show. They don't know what that show is, and they see or they see UPN, CW. You know, you you know, they they're gonna already have in their mind it. It's less than in their mind, right? So I'm just saying I've seen and I've had countless moments like that. So I'm just saying oh. I, I've seen it. I've seen it happen. Oh, I admire your patience. I I do have to share that. <laughs> Amber Ruffin made a great joke uh, about something like this because she was talking about how uh, about how black people have gone to see white entertainment, like white films and seeing white TV shows Mm -hmm. for a long, long, long time. And they appreciate stuff like that, but that it doesn't go the other way, that white audiences won't necessarily take to shows or movies with black talent. Yeah. um, Until another white person tells them to go see a hundred percent so then amber ruffin says well you know take friends she says um she goes why would i watch that because it was about a group of white people living in new york where every black person had vanished she goes and besides she goes i watched the original and then there was a card for living single (laughs) that's great (laughs) but that's true i mean and and, i mean like you're one of the rare few who step out and say these things, but you know, when it comes to Emmy time, it's like you can't, that thing gets to be its own machine, right? Of like, who's watching what, I'm not really watching that, or I'm not up on that, you know? And it's, it becomes such a weird, like I remember when we were doing, and I never said this while we were on, cause I never wanted Issa to have to answer for me, but I do remember vividly, it feels like they'll, it feels like people will pluck the person, like they would pluck Issa out, right? And obviously so, Right. But they would never play the show out over five years until except for one year. Like we only got one best series nominee in 2020. But I remember when Girls came out, it was like Lena Dunham was getting things. Allison Williams, the show, it was getting all these things. And then we came out afterwards and it was just Issa. And again, deservedly so. But never the show, never our directing, never anything else. And then 
The next year, Smilf comes out and Smilf gets best series nom. Uh, you know, Frankie Shaw. It was like, it was like, it just, they were like, oh no, we think you're great, but we're not acknowledging the rest of the shows. And it was like, and then to watch it just happen again, like just like Leapfrog us. And it was like that the whole run, except for that one year. And it was just like, yeah, that's what happens. I don't know. Every time I watched Insecure, all I could think was there really should be a best ensemble award. I mean, that's another thing, right? To watch. Never nominated for a SAG award, never nominated Stunning. for a Red's Guild awards, Stunning. like never nominated for DGA awards. It was like so like, what do we, but again, it's like the people who are doing it. So, you know, I, I don't want to get on my soapbox, but it was just always baffling to me that we could win. And that's when I know like the unions are a problem, not to be like that, but like the unions are run by typically older white people who are voting in certain ways, because to me, it would be baffling that we could win like Critics' Choice, a Peabody, which is, a, which is a writing award, you know, AFI awards, TCA awards. We'd win all these awards for like outside of that, but in the guilds, we can never get nominated. And it just goes to show who's, who's watching what, and they just didn't consider our stuff good to watch. You know what I mean? I also think about the Emmy voters and I feel like, you know, I, I keep waiting like another year or something like to see if they skew younger or something. But especially now, sadly, series don't last as long as they used to. Whether yes. it's because people want to move on and do other things or streamers just don't get behind them for as long. But I will tell you one thing, you know, for my friends who don't watch everything, like maybe when it first drops or something, one of my persistent comedy wrecks is always, oh, if you haven't watched Insecure, you oh, that's dope. get on that. HBO Max, get on that. Do not sleep on it. And like, it can be months or something where maybe the, it'll take them mm -hmm. a while to watch. And then I'll get an email or a text from someone who goes, oh man, thank you for telling me to watch that. <laughs> no. Um, what, can, are, what are you allowed to tell me about what you have in development right now? Yeah, we have, I mean, we've sold, I would say at Onyx, we've sold four comedies um, where we just pitched a drama today. We have a few more dramas going in before the end of the year. More comedy, uh, more comedy, more comedy. Yes. Yeah, we, no, we, we were really excited about that. Uh, one comedy I'm co-writing with this comedian named James Davis that I'm going to direct the pilot. And then I'm, I, we sold the docu-series that uh, right. I'm going to direct over there um, at the end of the year, top of the new, top, top of the new year. Um, and just being able to build out stuff over there, we're optioning with like material and IP. It's, it's been great. It's only been a year. Like we, it'll be a year this in October. I mean, it, like we just started October, but it'll, it'll be a year this October. So it's been really great. I mean, we're, it's, we signed a four year deal. So we're just <gasps> year one. So we're I didn't like, know it was that long. Like, That's fantastic. Yeah. I wanted to be somewhere for a minute and I felt to do that at an upstart where we're like, kind of like shaping it from the beginning that I wanted to be situated for a while to, cause I feel like it would take a year just to like get the lay of the land and like get up and going, yep. which is kind of what our first year has been. And so our year two is about like getting these things up and getting, you know, a couple of series, a couple of pilots to series, right. And then like build on top of that. Right. So I felt like four years was about the amount of time that we would kind of get a sense of, okay, is this, is this working for us? And so far it's been like amazing. Well, I'm going to keep an eye out for that. Cause you know, I would like to see whatever is coming next from Prentice Penny. Last question. Yeah. What have you watched lately where you went, damn, that's a good show? Um, I think Severance is so good. Yeah. Um, I'm really like, I'm really liking Severance. 
I still, I really still love Stranger Things. Like, I was just like, I love this season. I thought it was so good. I fell off it. Oh, really? I was like, I can't. I don't have the energy. It's I know like, it's it gets tough. I had to. I had to. I know. I had to find myself to get reinvested in a way too. Um, but I feel like I'm. It's like that thing where you're like, I'm in it now, so I got to see it all the way through. Um, I like your yeah, content. I think Severance was just so smart and just so well done that I was just like, yeah, this is a really well done, just really well done show. But I was like, man, I didn't, I didn't think of this. This is so awesome. Well, because it's a pretty far out idea. It I, is, I, it I, is. I was like, my mind doesn't go those places, but I was just like, I wish my mind thought like this sometimes. It just doesn't. And, uh, but I thought it was just so, I thought this though did such a great job. And obviously Adam Scott's amazing in it. That He's whole so cast. That yeah, whole cast. it is a great cast. Top notch. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm just craving more comedy. Yeah. So I, I thought after party, I thought after party was oh. so funny. It was just I, I I was like this Rashomon style of just like comedy and like Sam. I told Sam when Richardson when I saw, I was like, dude, you're so you're so good in that. But that whole cast was great. And when they did the uh, when they did the uh, when they did the uh, uh, the musical parts and all that, it was just so smart. I was like, this is really good. I was like, this is really good. So I really thought After Party was just so funny. I, I miss just, I miss just laughing at shows like exactly. laughing laughing. Speaking of Sam Richardson, though, he's also in Hocus Pocus too. Oh, okay. And I always think if Sam Richards, you should watch that with your family because it's okay, really I will. such a good time. And it's just so wacky and fun and just wonderful. And just I'm such a huge great. fan of his. He's so funny. Um, he's great. I think if he shows up in it, you should just watch it because okay. All right, be I'm gonna rewarded. do it. You know, you'll be rewarded. Um and I'm trying to think what else. Um, and I have to say. I became really addicted to hacks. Okay. And I also really liked um, that their second season was better than their first. Okay. I haven't watched the second yet. I watched the first. I thought the first was really good. So I haven't had a chance to watch the second yet. You know, you, you've done multiple seasons of television. You know how hard it is. to. Just it's hard. Do. It's really hard. Yeah. Yeah, it's really hard. And you've worked on a bunch of shows that have done that because you worked yeah. on Happy Endings. You worked yeah. on B99. I mean, Insecure just kept getting better. But that's a show that's like, it hacks has, to me, it reminds me of like the way, because even on Brooklyn, right, it has a sustainable engine. It's episodic, right? You're going to have some arcs that continue, but those are easier to somewhat do. It's like, what's the funny thing this week? What's the thing this week? Happy endings, what's the thing this week? Insecure is, hard, like, hack, those shows are harder because it's a much more complicated weaving of things, emotional journeys of things. And you're trying to find new engines all the time in a certain, in a different way, but, also these emotional connections that are, are tough. So if, if, if their second season is really good, then props to them because it, it is hard to continue to weave that blanket. I vouch for it. I think you will okay. really enjoy it. All right. I was very invested in Insecure and like a lot of fans, I was bummed. I was bummed to see it end, but then I get excited because then I can I can watch everyone on the show like go on <laughs> bigger and better things. And yeah. that's always how I try to think of things. I want to be the cockeyed optimist. I know it's crazy. That's good, though. That's good. Um, Prentice, that's it. That's all. I can't thank you enough. It was great to check in with you. Good to see you, too. Hello, everyone, and welcome to What's the Hook? Um, this is a very special edition because I have my guest today is Amy O'Dell, who is a fashion and culture writer that I basically am a big fan of. 
I read her biography of Anna Wintour called Anna, the biography, which I highly recommend. I, I absolutely love the book. And Amy also writes a really wonderful newsletter called Back Row, um, all about the fashion industry. She did incredible coverage of the recent fashion weeks, just so many different things. It's There's so much good content there. And I wanted to talk about TV fashion. So I thought, okay, I'm going to take a flyer and ask Amy. And here she is with me. Amy, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you, Diane, for being one of my earliest back row readers. Oh, I didn't even know that. But yeah, I, I think you were. I definitely was subscribing to the free edition for a while. But just for the folks out there, if you love fashion, just upgrade to that paid subscription and you will be richly rewarded. That is what I, that's my advice for today. <laughs> but Amy, we're here to talk about fashion on television. So we, we picked a handful of shows that we both watch and which show it's the guest choice. Which show would you like to start out with today? Oh, my God is to say sex in the city slash. And just like that. Yes. Okay. Also, by the way, did you see that production on season two has begun? I did, but I can't say oh yes yes no I was gonna say I can't recall any fashion moments but that's not true because I did see something um they have the and just like that costume department Instagram yes. and they yes. started posting yes oh, very I mean, exciting I loved I I found the show enormously entertaining I know it's not a perfect show but I, I enjoy it very much nonetheless I have to say what I really enjoyed was that it still had so much, so many bursts of color and life and style. I feel like a lot of the writing went left in a lot of ways, but we're yeah. going to discuss that. What were some of your favorite things from like season one of the show, since that's what we'll be talking about? Did you have any favorite looks, anything that like jumped out at you and you went, oh my God? Yeah, you know, I think overall it was kind of comforting just for it to be back. Because people like me were so attached to these characters and to this show. Yes. And for me, it was at a time in my life where I guess I was in high school and thinking about moving to New York. So for me, I guess there was, I don't mean this to sound as earnest as it will, but kind of an emotional element to it being back. And then the fashion, I certainly can recall off the top of my head that like very full skirted look that Carrie wears like to the, to the bodega to buy, what was she buying? Like cigarettes or something? I forget. White floofy skirt. Yeah. Yeah. And like her walking all around the city in heels, which I don't think that's in New York is done. I think that, you know, she would like walk and walk and walk and then meet Cynthia Nixon on the steps at NYU and they would chat and she'd be like, oh, I walked here from like uptown. Well, no, I don't believe that that's happening. So like the unreality of the fashion, like the disconnection from reality, which I think makes it good TV fashion stands out to me. I get it. And I also liked, I've also... I've also really liked, like, they've really evolved Miranda's look as well. I mean, Charlotte is still very much Charlotte. It's still very girly. It's still very uber feminine. Um, But 
the addition of Sarita Chudery as Carrie's realtor and then friend. Oh, she's so fabulous. <laughs> I love her. She's stunning. And also, I have never seen the color like like golds and bronze and all these beautiful, beautiful shades look so incredible on her. And they and literally, I was just like, okay, we need we either need her spinoff immediately, or and I'm hoping that we just get lots more of her in season two. And I'm pretty sure they will because they must have a brain in their head. Yeah, <laughs> I was also wondering in one of I've rewatched the original series, Sex in the City, many, many times. I mean, they rerun it on E! almost constantly. And of the many lines that Carrie says is there's an episode where she, she's considering looks for her book cover. And she talks about how she's, I guess, Carrie was 30, around 35 at the time. And she says, I'm, I, I, I cover it up a little more now. I don't let everything hang out anymore, you know? Uh-huh. And I'm just wondering, especially in, and just like that, she's definitely a lot more covered up. There's definitely a lot less, you see, you literally see a lot less of her skin showing. Yeah. The big yeah. jet. Yes, yeah. Yeah. I'm just wondering, oh, and, and my other question for you, you would know a lot more about this. Do you... Do you track, I mean, I'm not necessarily track, but do you think there's a big spike in sales for clothing? I mean, especially from stuff like Sex in the City and Anne Just Like That? You know, I haven't studied that, but in the past, that certainly was the case. I'm pulling up the photos um, from the show on my phone as we're talking. So that's why I'm, I'm looking no down. Um, I would expect that there would be. I mean, I think that you can credit Sex in the City with launching a craze for Manolos. Definitely. Um, you know, like the Fendi Baguette. I mean, we just saw Sarah Jessica Parker at the Fendi Baguette promotional show in New York City uh, put on by Fendi, a fashion show just to promote a handbag, which... Incredible. Um, what a show of consumerism. <laughs> and you can argue the merits of that, but, you know, like pretty brilliant marketing strategy. And then, you know, it made sense to have her there because the show I think was responsible for kind of making that bag a hot item. I guess the question is today, you know, when we have the internet, when we have social media, um, does a show like Sex and the City have as much impact? My guess would be no, but I think that this show is in a category of its own at this point and probably does yes sell things i mean celebrities wearing clothes that sells clothes true i've been a little surprised that they didn't do something in conjunction with instagram in terms of trying to sell looks from the show Hmm. i mean sarah jessica parker has her shoe company you know she has her shoe line and i've been a little surprised i know that instagram shop is allegedly a little wobbly these days i was reading some coverage Mm -hmm. of that but I'm still surprised that there wasn't some sort of tie-in on Instagram just because, you know, the looks are so, that's one of, it's one of the reasons people watch the show for sure. Um, so I've been a little surprised at that, that they didn't lean into that a little more. Um, I'm very yeah, curious to see. That, that's a good point. But I also think that a lot of fashion companies, you know, as far as they've come 
when it comes to the internet and technology and embracing the digital world, which was not an easy leap for them to make. And I talk about that in my book and on the biography a bit. Yeah. As far as they have come, I think that there's not been enough innovation around how to harness some of their popularity and turn that into sales through social media. I completely agree. And for a time, I remember when, when Friends was hugely popular, was, when Friends was still on the air. Yeah. And there were some um, as-seen-on-TV things trying to, they were trying to make a go of selling some stuff online of the looks that were seen on TV, and it just never took off. And I was really surprised at that because, you know, look, I'm older, but I knew the internet was powerful as soon as I had access to it. Yeah. So that surprised me. Anyway, we're going to move on to a different show right now, Succession, which will be coming back uh, soonish, I think, maybe early next year. I'm not sure. Yeah, not soon enough. When you watch this show, I guess I should ask, what do the clothes say to you? Yeah. um, The, um, oh my gosh, her name escapes me. Sarah Sarah Snook, who plays Shiv? Yes, Shiv, sorry. The character is Shiv. Sure. They've been off the air for too long. Um, I mostly notice her clothes probably because women just get to wear a greater variety of clothes. I almost feel like her clothes are kind of purposefully not so flattering and so great for her. Interesting. And I almost feel like that's kind of a comment on how she is kind like, you know, her character is kind of lacking direction in a way. I would say that I think her suits look very good on her. I think the suits they choose. I recall one blue pinstripe number, I think, in season three that looked very, very smart on her. But where what I noticed what you're saying is when the show moved to Italy at the last at the end of last season for their mother's wedding. And Shiv was wearing like a floral printed dress that just looked a little ungainly on her. It looked like it was not cut correctly for her. And it also just looked way too femmy for Shiv. It just seemed like something she wouldn't wear. Yeah, I'm looking at the pictures now. I think a lot of her clothes are are ungainly on her. I mean, I don't think they're trying to make her a fashion plate. And I think they're doing it with intention to say something about her character. Completely agree. Um, You know, I don't think they've really made anybody in the show a fashion plate. That said, Um, and I'm looking at her stuff now. Yeah, I think her suiting... Her suiting is to me so forgettable. What I remember about her is like when she goes to, um, like when she went to that birthday party in the nightclub. Oh, the, uh, that beautiful Jeremy green Jones dress on. Party. She had a gorgeous like green green dress on. It was like a, it looked like an emerald green. At least that's how it read on television. Yes, I'm looking at it now. I mean, I thought it was okay. I don't know. I think that. You know, and also you think about a woman like this who's like trying to be the leader of this enormous, enormous company. And, you know, where can she have fun with her clothes and where can she not have fun with her clothes? And we see that in the other character too. Um, 
who is the general counsel who becomes the Jerry, Jerry, Jerry Jason Cameron's character. Yeah, Jerry, like her clothes are even less interesting, <laughs> maybe because like she's worked in business longer because she, you know, she is at the top of a company. Like, I think there's real limits to what women in corporate America can, um, can get away with and like surely more limits than, than men. Very true. Um, I'm, I'm always fascinated by a good suit and that's where I enjoy the Roy men. And now Tom Wamsgam, played by Matthew McFadden, who just won an Emmy for for his role on the show. Mm -hmm. And and Tom's character is evolving and he's now in a power position since the end of season three. And I'm expecting to see a difference in his suiting in the coming season because uh, Roman always made fun of him for looking like a Midwestern insurance salesman. And yeah. <laughs> he thought his suits were way too plain. So I'm really expecting Tom to like show up in some, you know, Brioni or Zegna or something, something a cut above. Yeah. Yeah. It's time. It's time for him to get to the next level. Amen to that. Um, I can't wait to see what's in store in the new season. Um, switching gears. You wanted to talk about selling sunset. And I love that you brought up this show because I think, a couple of the women look completely ridiculous. They Which look one? Like dare to say. <laughs> well, I think uh, Christine Quinn and this new woman, Chelsea, I forget Chelsea's last name, the British woman, a fabulous looking woman, but they don't look like they're part of reality. And I guess that's right. okay. It's a reality show. So God bless. Right. I've seen some hilarious stuff on TikTok and on Instagram, like where people kind of break down how fake the show is and yeah. how it's not hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's so funny. There's, um, there's a great Instagram account called Bravo bone collector and they went through and they documented, like they went through all the sales that happened on the show and looked at who sold the houses, what they sold for basically like fact check the show. And a lot of the listings that they found like the public information did not match up with what we were told on the show. Like it was sold in some cases by entirely other people. So wow. it's definitely something to go look at if you love the show. And it's um, not even a Bravo yeah. show. So Christine Quinn yeah. is a fascinating sort of figure because she was wearing, she's wearing like all of this identifiable designer stuff. She wore a lot of Balenciaga. Yes. And then this past summer, she walked in the Balenciaga Couture show. I saw that. Yeah. And then she went to the fashion show. Maybe she went to the fashion show first. I forgot the order. She went to a fashion show on Wall Street. Balenciaga had a show like on a Sunday, made everybody go to Wall Street to watch it. She was there. Um, she had a front row moment with Anna. And yeah. uh, then she appeared in the Couture show. Which is like, that's a pretty big leap to go from, you know, being on a reality show like Selling Sunset to walking in the Balenciaga Couture show. Uh, But I also think that the reason that happened is because she was buying all that stuff, all that Balenciaga stuff and wearing it on the show. You know, like it was obvious that she was a Balenciaga woman and um, Demna, the designer of Balenciaga, he's very much into irony. And uh, it was kind of completely in keeping with his ethos for the brand for him to embrace her and, you know, bring her 
into the family a bit. Um, but I think what she did was very smart. And that doesn't happen really that often. Like typically reality stars are not the people that high-end fashion brands want to embrace. And of course there are exceptions. Like um, I know Mark Jacobs loves Lisa Rinna from The Housewives and uh, he'll post about her on Instagram where she's wearing like a, lo- a full, fully logo Marc Jacobs look and he's so excited about her. So there are exceptions, but it's it's not typical. And there was something about Christine's look is disconnected from reality, though it may be, that made her look, I guess, or seem like kind of that luxury consumer archetype. Well, this is what I was wondering. I was wondering how much of the clothing like she was getting from designers or was she buying it herself? I wonder the same thing about Dorit Kemsley, who is on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills and wears these head to toe, like head to toe Louis Vuitton or head to toe Chanel. And I always wonder, like, how much are they getting from designers and how much are they actually buying with their own with money? Yeah, so I think that my assumption, and I haven't um, fully reported on this, but my assumption is generally that they're buying it. Okay. And I would have to see the looks and know like what season they're from, because mm. uh, that can sometimes be a clue as to whether they're buying or borrowing. Right. Like if they're wearing something that's not out yet, they're probably, you know, that's being loaned to them. If they're wearing something that's a few seasons old, I would expect that they're buying that. Got it. Um, but yeah, I think that like Chanel, Chanel is not really as into irony as Balenciaga. <laughs> and I don't think Louis Vuitton is right now either. Mark Jacobs used to design Louis Vuitton. And, and I think at that moment, there was more irony and maybe more playfulness to the brand. But it's not it's not one I associate with irony and like a sense of humor today, personally. Right. right. Um, so yeah, I would be skeptical that those brands are doing a lot of loaning to housewives. I think a lot of them are probably buying it or, you know, people buy in return. <laughs> Like that's the thing a lot of people I do. Forgot like, about that. Oh my god, I forgot about that. And is there anyone else on Selling Sunset whose looks have like again this woman Chelsea, who is this fabulous black woman who literally just looks like she is working her own runway anytime yeah. she's on camera. And I I do admire it, but I feel like it has nothing to do with the world of real estate. Yeah, um, I'm pulling up the photos right now so I can remember sure. some of the things. No that problem. She, she had an early alliance with Christine, right? On yes, the show. She did. You are correct. Um, yeah, so they're simpatico. They definitely formed a, a, a quick friendship. And Chelsea still got in the mix of all the Michigas between uh, the ladies. But she definitely really. I mean, she's wearing like the big, giant, chunky platforms with the teeny tiny skirt suits and um, and just things, things I can't believe people would actually wear in real life because wouldn't you rip something? Wouldn't, isn't there bound to be some sort of, you know, how do you actually move in these things? How do you drive? You're in Los Angeles. How do you actually drive? Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, what you make of that. 
Yeah, I don't think that these clothes are for them to be real estate agents. I think these clothes are for them to be reality TV stars. Yeah, okay. And I think that these women are very savvy. Like, you know, reality TV has been around for decades at this point. True. And I think if you're going on a reality TV show now, you have to probably be kind of savvy about why and what you want to get out of it. Um, and, you know, I don't know, but... She came on after how many, like one or two seasons? I think it was after two. Yeah. 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 And so at that point, you know, the show had had a history and she would have seen, I think, how her cast members were using fashion to to become characters on the show, which is their job is to be characters on the show, you know, and they're not really on the show to sell real estate. And if you think of other real estate shows like Million Dollar Listing, I don't have any memory of anything that they've worn on that show. You know, like I can recall housewife looks from a while ago. I and I've watched Million Dollar Listing LA, but you know, I I don't I don't recall that they were um they were really using fashion in the same way on that show. I would agree because I think most of the men are less flamboyant on Million Dollar Listing. Mm-hmm. Josh Flagg is the only one who has a, a real sense of fashion, you know, and he'll show up in velvet loafers like embossed with a with a logo or with a crest, you know, yeah. show up in, in a beautiful velvet blazer, you know, he has a yeah. fashion. the rest of the guys, you know, are definitely dressed for business. They want to look manicured and yeah. you know, they want to look, it's a very clean professional look. Um, and then the other person on selling sense that I wanted to talk to you about was Chriselle, who definitely, she is, she became better known because she used to be married to Justin Hartley from this is us. And then they got divorced and it was portrayed on the show and it, it was a mess, but I feel like she's definitely leveraged a lot of clothing endorsement clothing partnerships, I guess they would be. Okay. You mean like on Instagram? Exactly. I see a lot of that on her Instagram and, um, now she is involved with a singer, G Flip, who is non identifies as non-binary. And um, I feel like Rochelle has sort of embraced her own like kind of sex appeal and mm-hmm. her own, she's really kind of embraced her own look and what she likes, but of course still does not look like a, any real life realtors that I know, but I guess that's okay. You know, she's, she's, you know, appearing on TV as a realtor, I guess, is her role. That's a really good point. Um, so I think, but but I feel like she's the one who looks most like a normal person <laughs> rather than sort of a dress-up doll, which is, I feel like a lot of the other women just look like dress-up dolls. I see, that's interesting you think that because I don't think that she's necessarily any less interesting to look at actually, um, just in terms of what she's wearing. I'm looking at her feed now. Um, oh, I didn't, I didn't mean she's less interesting to look at. I mean, first of all, she's a really gorgeous woman. She's a really, she looks fantastic. I mean, she looked good if in a pair of jean shorts and a, and a t-shirt. She's really lovely. And um, I just feel like she looks more real than the other ladies. Uh, I feel, I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe it's just me. I don't know. Maybe that's just my perception. I think her clothing is, is still out there. Uh, personally, 
Um, I feel like she's someone, it's funny, who inspires like very impassioned feelings <laughs> among people who watch the show. Yeah. Um, I feel like of all the characters on the show, I almost feel like when I talk to people about the show, like she is the most love-hate sort of character. I feel like it's her, Christine. Or maybe it used to be Christine and now it's Chriselle. Yeah, because Christine, well, Christine's not going to be on it anymore, I think. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, look, she's not wearing like the Balenciaga stuff that Christine was wearing. Or um, when Christine was pregnant and she wore the Fendace, uh, Versace and Fendi collab, like a full logo sort of crazy. And that was a collection where everyone's like, oh my God, this is like so ridiculous and unnecessary. And there she is you know, is a very tacky collection and she just, she owns it and she embraces it. Um, but she also has the money to buy it. That's what I've heard that she's buying that stuff. My husband is very, very wealthy. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, Chriselle has her own, her own style and it's different from that. But I, but when I see her like in the office on the show or doing her job on the show, I'm always noticing like, you know, how is she wearing those shoes all day? Or That's what I always you, think. <laughs> where do you even buy a dress like that? <laughs> you know? It's, yeah, I never dress for business, just dress to the nines. Um, the last show uh, that I think we want to talk about, because we both loved it, is mm-hmm. Insecure. Issa mm-hmm. Rae's wonderful, wonderful show. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of staggered by the fashion right from the jump, right when the show started, but my God, the final season. And then when they did uh, Molly's wedding, Yvonne Orji's character and everybody at that wedding just looked so incredibly beautiful. Yeah. Um, Tell me, what do you make of it? Well, Shiona Torini is the costume designer and I actually worked with her a little bit when I was at Cosmo a while ago and Oh my God. I think what she's done on the show is just brilliant. I mean, she's also styled like Solange. <laughs> um, she styles some like really top cut people and she herself has really excellent taste. And I think that the show, what I really like about that show and what I think is so smart about it is like, yes, they're dressing, they're dressing the characters in a way that it's interesting. Like you always want to know what they're going to wear, even if she's just at home talking to herself in the mirror of her bathroom. Yes. Um, but they also dress them in a way that's believable in those situations. Whereas like on Sex and the City or in Just Like That, like we never see Carrie dressed down. You know, we never really see her like in leggings, like unless it's a scene. I think there was one scene where she was in a robe. But I feel like that is kind of just necessary to show that, um, She's a human being sometimes because <laughs> she's not a relatable character really in any way. She has all this oh. money. She has this beautiful apartment. And then like she never wears a flat shoe or dresses down. Like uh, I feel like it would be okay for them to like give her that a little bit. And um, it could still be interesting as they did on Insecure. Like no matter what the characters were doing, they always looked great. Um, you wanted to look like them, like you wanted to wear what they were wearing, but it wasn't so disconnected from reality that it was consistently distracting. I agree because, you know, Molly uh, is a corporate lawyer and Molly is like a corporate lawyer when she goes to work. 
You know, she wears she, beautiful things, but she looks, she still looks like a lawyer. Yeah. They find like the edgiest business yes. clothes that they can. And I, you know, I'm a freelance writer who works from home. So I don't have a lot of exposure to <laughs> like, um, uh, a corporate, you know, law office, office and like yeah. what they wear. Um, although I know that that's all changing now and I know insecure ended, but that's all changing now with the pandemic, like everything is less formal. And this is another thing I think you could critique and just like that about like the show doesn't seem to be acknowledged. Like, I think they talk about the pandemic in the show, like they acknowledge it. It's not like it didn't happen in, in that world, but they have not really, um, done anything other than mention it in dialogue to suggest that this happened. Very true. One of the things they could do is allow the women to like dress down a little bit just because that's the world that we're living in now. You know, like people are F leisure has had a huge boon, which by the way, I read I read your email today about aloe. Oh thanks. Uh, which was a really fascinating read. Uh, but yeah, the athleisure boom is still in full effect. People, yeah. you know, joggers have now become, you know, upgraded so that they can be suitable workwear. So very, very interesting. I wonder if we'll see any athleisure in season two of and just like that. I mean, I think Insecure did a great job also of evolving looks over the seasons, um, mm-hmm. especially with Issa. I mean, Mm -hmm. they took such care just in terms of like when she would wear a vintage T-shirt or something. It was always, it was all chosen with such great care or the jeans that she wore um, because she did wear jeans on occasion. Yeah. When she evolved into a powerful businesswoman, she looked the part, but she looked contemporary and she looked of the moment, which I really love. And the same with Molly. Yeah. And speaking of buying and returning, I remember a scene from that show, I forget which season, where Issa is um, in a boutique with Molly. Yeah, well, she's returning something that she had worn. Yes. And it's like she does this all the time because she couldn't afford it. Like she was driving Lyft in the show, right? She was a community exactly. organizer. So that was like part of the um, the fun of the show was watching her, um, you know, figure out her career, which is a very relatable thing, like making ends meet, doing something um that you love or that you believe in and like how hard that is. Right. Of course. Um, contrasted with Molly who took a very different path and they really show that through fashion as we said, but yeah, that scene where she's buying and returning, like that is really so relatable. For <laughs> so many. Um, where, like if you, you know, a lot of people I think do that. I do a series in my newsletter called retail confessions and everybody has talked about that, the buying and the returning. That's right. Oh, you retail so workers. Those are great. I love those. They're so fascinating. But the idea is to get an insight into consumer behavior by talking to people who work in these um, these major stores like Neiman Marcus, Bergdorf, Goodman, and they all talked about buying and returning. Like it just happens. And they, you know, the luxury stores feel like they have kind of no choice but to take things back. So anyway, it's something that everybody does, like at all price points from what I could tell. Very, very relatable. And Insecure is, it, it's worth a rewatch just, just to watch the fashion. Because I'm also a big admirer of Shiona's Instagram feed. Because mm-hmm. she curates her own looks with the same sort of care that she does for her clients. Yeah. And she looks, she makes, she's made some really wonderful brand partnership deals. And 
it's just, she must move a lot of merch for the people that she works with because yeah, the way she does her feed is just, it's art. It's absolute art. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, before I let you go, we have to talk about one more thing because yeah. you wrote that wonderful um, post about the Oscars and the Met Gala. We need to talk about it. Amy, I'm going to throw to you and let you t- like set it up and run with it. Yeah, so Puck News reported recently that there was a meeting held by the Film Academy that hands out the Oscars in which they talked about reviving the annual award show, which, as we all know, has been in precipitous decline over the past, I don't know. At least decade. At least decade. I was going to say decade, but then like very much accelerated by the pandemic. Anyway... Uh, And one of the organizers' plans for reviving the show or something that they would like to do is make the red carpet more like the Met Gala or the Cannes Film Festival. And I thought that this was an extraordinary thing for the Academy to admit that, like, they were second to the Met Gala or even Cannes, which I don't place anywhere near um, the Met Gala in terms of significance, to be honest with you. The Met Gala is everything. That red carpet is everything. It was an extraordinary admission because the Met Gala, Anna Anna Wintour, who is the editor-in-chief of Vogue and who runs the Met Gala, she had been working since she took over in 1995 to make it like the Oscars. And it was called for a long time, the Oscars of the East Coast. And it was really only this year that I think I really noticed that that was no longer an appropriate nickname for the Met Gala. Because the Oscars are so um, uh, just not on that scale anymore, you know? So now it's like the Oscars are trying to be the Met Gala of the West Coast instead of the Met Gala trying to be the Oscars of the East Coast. Like the Met Gala has surpassed the Oscars and really just become its whole its whole own thing. It's the Super Bowl of red carpets, you know? What I liked is the differentiation you made that the Met Gala is there to support fashion and to support, you know, the Costume Institute, whereas the Oscars are there to celebrate the best in movies. And it, it's their different goals, basically. And if yes. you were to reconceive the Oscar red carpet, I mean, because I always watch the red carpets because I just love a red carpet, you know, give me people in, in beautiful yeah. finery. You know, at one time, I really wanted to be an on-air host for that. And when I watched the people on ear, whatever, I'm like, no, no, I could do a better job at this. Right. Just with my volume of knowledge. Um, What would you like to see the Oscars red carpet do? Yeah, I was thinking about this all week since you tipped me off to this story. Uh, (laughs) So I think that... Like there are some basic things that they could probably do easily. Like the art direction, I think they could fix. Just make it look more beautiful for like okay. the Instagram and the TikTok footage, sure. you know? Um, like the old-fashioned Oscars step and repeat. Like it seems really dated. Um, I think they should probably make it a lot smaller and uh, talent-focused, uh, meaning like... Um, versus having, I think Puck News made this point as well. Like these celebrities come and they have like 10 people in 
black outfits surrounding them. And like the Met Gala red carpet doesn't have that. Um, do you I, mean like, even, do you mean people's reps or do you mean? Yeah, they have like reps and handlers. I don't know. They just seem to kind of be clogging the carpet. Like it seems very busy. I think they kind of need to pare it down and um, be probably more selective about who they're letting in. And I think they also probably need to include uh, real fashion people just, just to be there and just to add that, um, just to add that excitement to the red carpet, like invite people, you know, like con, one thing they do is they invite models every year and you'll see Bella Hadid go and like vintage Chanel or vintage Versace and everyone will talk about it. I forget exactly what she wore this year, but it's, it's she wore some like vintage gowns that got a lot of attention. Nice. Um, so just like inviting people like that who who are going to go and be really fashion forward. And I, you know, in reporting that I've done in the past on uh, celebrity styling, it was said to me that actresses in particular, like a long time ago, maybe 15 years ago, didn't want to really take any fashion risks because they worried that they that would pigeonhole them into like a certain kind of part. Ah. And we're seeing that, we're seeing that really change. And I think what's happening is these actors, they know that they need to stand out and that fashion is a really great way to do that. And, you know, it also gives them the benefit of, you know, maybe they can get a brand deal out of it that would pay really well. That's exactly what I was thinking. I think a lot of them have gotten brand deals because of some of the looks that they choose on various red carpets, whether it's premieres, events they go to, events they attend, things like the Oscars, the Emmys. Um, I mean, I, Sarah Paulson immediately sprang to mind um, as someone who has had some really iconic looks and some really, I think she works with, I want to say Kara Welch works with uh, her and some really, really incredible looks. I'm, I'm really curious to see if the Academy will adopt any new ideas. I think it's an institution that says they want change, but they have a really hard time leaning into it. Yeah. And I don't know, I know they've got some younger members now. I know, you know, they've, they've gotten, they've really tried to be more inclusive. I'm really curious to see if that will translate into some real change. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I'd also love to see like one of the best reporters on the red carpet who does interviews is George Pinocchio, who works for the local ABC station here. But I really want to see, I would love at least one hardcore fashion reporter on the red carpet. Because for a while, people were saying, oh, you shouldn't just ask women what they're wearing. And now I've noticed that Laverne Cox is doing red carpet coverage for E! And now her question isn't, what are you wearing? She says, what story are you telling with this outfit? And I found that, I was like, that's a nice change up. Interesting. Yeah, I don't watch any of those pre-shows. I mean, I have two small children, so I just don't watch that much TV. Sure, sure. But, um... Or any TV I watch is after they go to bed and it's never live TV. So, you know, look, I'm the typical um, probably millennial or or Gen Z, nobody cares about millennials anymore, who's not tuning into that type of coverage. And the Oscars, I think, I don't know, has any award show really figured out how to own their own red carpet coverage? Like truly, 
Um, because what happens is it does, the red carpet does get talked about on TikTok and I, I probably spend more time on TikTok now than I do any other social platform. Amazing. But like on TikTok, people just, they take the footage or the images of people on the red carpet and they just critique the outfits. Like, you know, and they say things that I feel like any network television host would just get completely maligned for saying, but if it comes from like a random TikTok creator, then for some reason it's fine. So I don't know what the solution is to that, but I, I don't think that any legacy media outlet or any of these legacy award shows, for lack of a better term, has really figured out how to own it. I mean, if you look at the Met Gala, so Vogue does its own live stream and they have um, like actresses hosted and they run it. From what I've heard, they really run it like a live TV broadcast where there's tons of people involved. There's like um, a control room where they're like, you know, saying cut to this camera, cut to that camera. It's a very big production, but at least like, you know, some of those moments from their own broadcast are getting picked up and going viral. They need, better hosts. They need better hosts though. The people they've been choosing, 100%. the, the people yeah. they've been choosing are not quite up to the task. Uh, I, you know what? I shouldn't say that. Hamish Bowles, fantastic. He's fantastic because he, he also talks about the history of the Met Gala. He knows a lot. Yes. Oh. And is just such an authority as well on the fashion, on the history. He's wonderful. So he's terrific. Yeah, I, I think that these institutions could have more fun with the way they do interviews on the red carpet. Yes. I mean, I started my career doing this for New York Magazine, and I would ask weird questions, you know, because it was for New York Magazine and like, that's kind of what they were going for. They just wanted funny quotes for their party lines page. And there would always be, there aren't nearly as many events in New York anymore or probably LA either, but it's true. There would always be like fragrance launches. And my editor, Jada Yuan, who uh, is now doing politics for the Washington Post and is a phenomenal journalist. Anyway, she was running the party coverage and she told me to ask, she told me at fragrance parties to ask, what do you smell like? Which is, I mean, that's so brilliant. And like, I feel like audiences don't need this like really watered down coverage anymore. It's not, it doesn't work anymore because we have alternatives, which is these people on TikTok who are just going to say whatever they think, you know? I mean, TikTok saturation is great. I still think some people will watch, you know, I know I watch the Met Gala live stream. I'm, Mm -hmm. I love it. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's, it needs work. I have, as we say in the business, I have notes. Um, but by the way, yeah. that's another thing we have in common, Amy, because I used to do event coverage for Vulture here in Los Angeles. So oh, yeah. I ask a lot of those goofy questions because, yes, I did do stuff for party lines. And uh, I never wanted to ask just run-of-the-mill questions. I was yeah. always like, fine, give me weird questions. I'll ask them whatever you want. It's totally okay. Yeah. And also, it, it became a matter of just drawing people out. And once you get them to talk, they'll eventually say something weird. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm very curious to see if all this has an effect on the Oscars. I'm, I was fascinated when I read that Puck article. So, of course, I forwarded it to, to you immediately because now yeah. you're like one of my go-tos. But I'll try not to litter your inbox too much. Amy O'Dell, thanks for being here today. Thank you for Thank the you chat. So much. Thank you so much for having me. And um, everybody, uh, get Anna the biography, got to do a little hype and look for Amy's newsletter, Back Row. Amy, do you want to tell people how to subscribe to that? 
Yeah, just go to, it's a Substack newsletter. So it's at amyodell.substack.com. Beautiful. And I hope to talk to you again soon, Amy. Have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Thank you so much, Diane. 